series on the book of James this week, and we're up to chapter four. We'll see in this passage that James doesn't hold back. You're never going to be in any doubt about what James thinks about something. And this week he deals with some serious topics. Last week, Pastor James, our Pastor James here, not James who wrote the book, (laughs) shared the previous passage and he talked about heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. We saw how heavenly wisdom results in peace and good fruit. While earthly wisdom, which is made up of envy, selfish ambition and lack of humility, leads to disorder. As we now look at the next part of James's letter, we see what type of wisdom James considers the people he's writing to to have. James 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are obviously major problems happening with the people James is writing to. Quarrels, fights, wars. And as we look at society today, we see things haven't really changed. People are in dispute with others. Families are divided through arguments. Nations fight against each other. Yet the people James is writing to are believers. They should be living in a different way to the world. And that is true for us. Yet at times churches split over an issue that can't be resolved. Or people have left church altogether because they've fallen out with others there. There are problems and issues within churches. James tells us here that such behaviour is wrong. We all know that, but how often do we find we aren't living like that? James talks about quarrels and fights. The words used refer to things such as battles, wars, strong conflicts, as well as nasty verbal exchanges or criticism. James even mentions murder, although it's held unlikely that the people were actually fighting to that extent that they were murdering each other. More likely, James uses these strong terms to point out the seriousness of what they are doing. The issue James addresses here is covetousness, wanting what's not ours, what someone else has, what we can't have. It's not wrong in itself to want something, to strive, to obtain, to work hard, to gain something, whether it's something, a physical item or something more intangible. Where the problem arises is when the need to have whatever it is dominates our life. It affects our thoughts and relationships, which is what we see in this passage. It becomes all-consuming. There's a struggle within us between what we want and what we should be desiring. It becomes an end in itself rather than a blessing that we use to enjoy life and serve God. When covetousness dominates, love and concern for others disappears. We start to resent those that have what we want. We feel it's not right that they have and we don't. It affects our relationship with others. At times I've read about 
court cases about disputes over wills, where people are challenging what they have been left in a will or what another family member has been given. There's been the occasional ones where there clearly is an injustice. But in most cases, it's crazy. The cost of bringing it to court, the legal fees, far, far outweighs what they're going to get, even if successful. Usually, rather than the monetary value, there appears to me more the sense of, I should have this. It's unfair. I've missed out. Or they shouldn't get that. They don't deserve it. Even in cases where people have been well provided for. This, this is the same issue of covetousness that James deals with here. Now, you might think I'm not like that. But how often have you felt a twinge of jealousy or unhappiness when someone gets something that you would have liked and you didn't get it? Maybe it's a promotion at work or something at work that you go for and you don't get it. Someone else does. Or maybe, you know, people that seem to breeze through life without any apparent monetary problems. They buy whatever they want. In pre-COVID times, they went on these amazing holidays while you're there just struggling to pay all the regular bills. And you think that doesn't seem fair or... Or why do they have so much? Covetousness lies in our heart, ready to spring into action in those situations. We can try to justify it. Oh, I'm just concerned about the fairness of it all. You know, it's not what I want. It's just, a, it's just not a fair, you know, a fair situation. I'm just concerned about that. Not only does covetousness affect our relationship with others, because no matter how much we try to hide it, if we're wanting what another has, it will affect how we act and relate to them. But most importantly, covetousness affects our relationship with God. When we covet, we're saying to God that these things are more important than he is, than what he has given us. That we're saying what he has for us isn't sufficient. We want something more. We want something different. What he has for us isn't enough. We doubt God's love and care for us. We start to either ignore God because if he's not going to give us what we want, well, what good is he? Or we start to get angry and resent God because, he, again, he's not doing what we want. James then talks about asking God for things. God knows and has what they needed. He knew and had what those people needed. But in their foolishness and pride, they don't ask him for it. And Or when they do ask, they ask with wrong motives. They're asking for the wrong things with the wrong motives. They ask with selfish desires. They're asking for themselves with no consideration for others. This asking shows where their hearts are at. Because not only do they not care about other people, they certainly don't care about God. And we see this in the next passage. James 4, 4 to 6. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James makes it clear that believers have a choice. 
They're either friends with the world or they're friends with God. You can't have both. This doesn't mean that we don't participate in the world, that we have to withdraw totally, that we have to you know, get our own little group somewhere totally away from the world and have nothing to do with it. We won't be able to share about God with people that don't know him if we don't spend time with those people. It's not prohibiting being friends with people who are non-believers. What James means is being totally involved and consumed with the things of the world that don't honour God, the values and practices that are opposed to what God says. The problem comes when our love for the world and the things of the world overtake our love for God. Our loyalty and commitment must be to God and to him alone. Jesus said this strongly in Matthew 6, where he talked about laying up treasures in heaven and sent there in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our heart is fixed on God, then other things fall into place. We enjoy and use what God's given us, but they don't own us. They don't become more important than God. We seek God for who he is and for what he desires to give us, not for what we covet. James tells them that this friendship with the world is adultery in their relationship with God. We tend to think of adultery in terms of human relationships. But as we see in the Bible, our relationship with God is described as a marriage relationship. God, in the, in the New Testament, for example, the church is referred to as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, we see that God is referred to as, as the husband of the people. And we're told to be a pure bride, to be ready for the bridegroom. Jesus told parables about this. And the book of Hosea, the relationship of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, mirrors the unfaithfulness of the Israelites with God. But that book also shows the unfailing love and mercy of God. When we substitute our own desires in place of God, then we're being unfaithful to him. And it is pride that causes us to do this. It was pride that led to the original sinning in the beginning, the desire to be like God, doubting what he had said and disobeying what he had declared. Pride in the Bible refers to boastful arrogance, Greed, envy, vanity, having a distorted sense of one's value and importance in the world. We often hear the phrase entitled people, entitled person thrown around nowadays. Someone will do something a bit outrageous like, oh, they're so entitled. They just think everything revolves around them. They just think they can have what they want or they deserve special treatment. And those people can be a bit annoying to be with. Maybe you've got a family member who's a bit like that. And you're like, oh, I've got to spend time with them and they're just so entitled and they just want everything and it's so annoying. Or maybe you just, if you're like certain people, you might just enjoy stirring them up a bit, just trying to point out how ridiculous their supposed entitlement is. When we act, are acting proud, we are acting entitled. We even think we're better than God. We might deny it with our words, but the way we act shows that. Pride will always set us up against God. 
When we are proud, we are unable to receive from him. We are convinced of our own self-sufficiency. God wants us to be people who are governed and led by the Holy Spirit he's given us, who humble ourselves before God and receive his grace. Grace is of no use to those who are proud because they don't think they need it. A good quote about this says, Pride does not know its own need. It cherishes its own independence. It does not recognise its own sin. But if we humble ourselves, we see how much we need God's grace. Then in the next verses, James tells us what we should do. James 4, 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We are first of all to submit to God. To do this, we need to humble ourselves. Before, because the word for submit means to place under. It's a military term where we yield ourselves to the authority of another. That's God. And we will never do this if we aren't humble. If we think we know better than God does, or if we push for our own desires. I like a statement I saw somewhere which says, Pride is self-exalting, while submission is self-lowering, self-yielding, self-denying. If we submit to God, we will obey what he says. If we do that, then the issues that James has been talking about will be resolved. We won't be fighting and wanting our way. We won't be selfishly seeking what we want, but instead looking to God and doing his will. We see harmony and peace in our lives and around us. Now that sounds great, but we all know it's not that easy. We try to submit to God, but our human nature rises up and we, aren't, we discover we aren't doing what he said. How many of you have started the day praying, maybe reading your Bible and praying, like, today I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to keep myself from sin. No sinful actions, no sinful thoughts, nothing. I'm going to be loving and kind and gracious and generous and all these things. And then you start to get through the day and suddenly you realise you've been getting frustrated and a bit angry and a bit yeah, down and a bit annoyed and a bit everything sort of seems to be coming on you. And you suddenly realise all those great intentions you were going to do that morning, all boosted by prayer and by reading your Bible and everything. Suddenly what you read has gone out of your mind what you prayed seems to have disappeared and you suddenly discover that you just are getting really, yeah, really over it and you're not doing the things that you declared that you would do. We need to take note of the next thing that James tells us to do. Resist the devil. The most effective way to resist the devil is to submit to God because then the devil has no chance. And if we could do that perfectly, we'd be fine. But because we struggle with that, we need to also take other action. We need to not entertain or play with temptation. We will be tempted, and it's what we do with that temptation that's important. 
James has already talked in chapter 1 about how we are tempted by being enticed by our own desires. The devil knows with each one of us the wrong things that are attractive to us. And that's what he will use to tempt us. As we entertain these desires, as we play with them, they lead to sin. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul talks about taking every thought captive to obey God. In the beginning of Romans 12.2, he tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Ephesians 4.27, talking about not sinning with anger, Paul says to not give the devil a foothold. And in 1 Corinthians 10.13, we're given the encouragement, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So while we will face temptation, we need to look to God and see what his way out of it is for us. The more we resist the devil, the more we'll be able to submit to God. And the more we submit to God, the more we'll be able to resist the devil. If we resist the devil, he will flee. But he will try again to tempt us. It's not a one-off action. We don't do it once and then that's done completely. The devil will keep trying other ways, other means to tempt us. And we need to keep submitting to God and resisting the devil. As he tries these other ways, as he uses different ways, different strategies, even different people sometimes to tempt us. And the next verse encourages us in this by telling us to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. As we seek him, as we call upon his grace in our lives and his power to help us, he will be there. In part of Isaiah 57, 15, and I love this verse, it's a great verse. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. James calls the people double-minded and he tells them to cleanse their hands and to purify their hearts, to cleanse and purify Drew on the uh, language of the ritual language of the temple. It was something that was familiar to the people, the things they had to do before they went into the temple to enter into God's presence. And if we continue to play with temptation and sin, we will be double-minded. On one hand, we're trying to submit to God and do what he says. On the other hand, we're still trying to entertain sin. To cleanse our hands means that we, to make sure we aren't carrying out any sinful deeds. To purify our hearts means we deal with the source of our deeds, our thoughts, our desires. And then we get to verse 9. It's not up there at the moment, but I'll read it out to you. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, if you're flicking through your Bible to look for a verse to sort of set you up for the day, to encourage you for the day, maybe you think, oh, I just need a verse of Scripture that I can really think about today and I'll just go through my Bible, I'm kind of, I think I'd be probably 100% right that this would not be the verse that you would pick. This would be like, oh, okay, let's go to the next one. Let's go a bit further on because it's not exactly the most cheerful verse. But it is an important one. What James is trying to get across here is how serious sin is. He tells them that their sinful thoughts and behaviour isn't something that can be easily excused or disregarded. 
If they're serious about following God, they need to deal with their sin. They need to, be, they need to repent. They need to be sorrowful about what they have done, the way that they've disobeyed God. They need to really take it to God and really repent and be sorrowful about the wrong things they're doing. As we've seen already in this letter, there's a number of things James has highlighted that need to change in the lives of these people, in the lives of the people that he's writing to. These people have become comfortable and accepting of sin, yet they still expect God to do what they want. We also need to deal with our sin. At times we can be casual about it. In our society, different types of wrongdoing are dealt with differently, and that makes sense. We would be horrified, and rightly so, if a person who speeds a little bit got the same punishment as someone who murders, or a person who shoplifts got the same penalty as someone who defrauds a company of millions of dollars. Obviously, it makes sense that there is a scale of wrongdoing with different results. What we can forget is that in God's eyes, sin is sin. With God, there are not different scales of sin. And the penalty for any sin, no matter how large or small we would consider it, is death. And we are only freed from this penalty through Jesus' death on the cross. Just a few minutes ago, we took communion. We remembered that Jesus had died for our sins, that our sins were cleansed because of his death and resurrection. And that's something we need to keep remembering, that that is the only thing that frees us from the penalty of our sin. We can forget how our sin hurts God how devastating our sin is to to our relationship with God and with others. Only as we truly repent and humble ourselves do we understand our need for God's grace and are able to receive it. It's only as we humble ourselves, if we understand how much we need God's grace, are we able to receive it. And that's what James points out in verse 10 where he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exhort you. Trying to exalt ourselves is useless. It brings strife, frustration, unhappiness, anger. We weren't created to be our own God. Humbling ourselves before God, realising his greatness and submitting to his authority, repenting of our sinful pride brings grace, peace and life. Just as the people James wrote to need to hear this, we also need to be reminded of these things, something we need to remind ourselves over and over again. We are to put aside anything that would affect our relationship with God. Put aside pride, covetousness, wrong desires. It's not easy to do this. It goes against what our human nature wants. But if we continually humble ourselves before God, Repent and receive his grace. We will see such a change. If you want your life and relationships to be more peaceful, to be more satisfying, to be more fulfilling, then really take note of what this passage says. And each day put into practice. Each day submit to God. Humble yourselves. Receive his grace. Seek him for who he is, for what he desires to give you. Seek him for the good things. And most of all, seek him for who he is because that's where you will find what you need is in knowing God. Draw near to him. As it says, he'll draw near to you. Put aside pride. Put put aside covetousness. Each time when you feel that happening, 
Instead of thinking, oh, yeah, everyone's like that, or oh, that wasn't too bad, I'm not as bad as those people. Realize that it is sin and repent and seek God again. Resist the devil. Resist the things that you know he's trying to tempt you in. Just walk away from them. Put them aside. Submit yourself to God. And each time it will become incredible. You will receive the peace, the grace, the life that you need. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, most of all, Lord God. We so need your grace in our lives, Lord. Lord, I pray for each of us that we can humble ourselves to you, that we draw near to you, that we do resist the devil, that we do seek you, that we ask you for the right things, Lord God, not for selfish things, not for wrong things, but we ask you for more of you, Lord, so that we can know how to live, how to live in the life you've given us. And I pray too, Lord, that we will be people that show your grace and your mercy, people that show what it means to live in a close relationship with you so that others will desire this too, Lord God. Lord, we do thank you that you love us so much, that you care for us so much, Lord God. We thank you for all the good things we have, Lord. And I pray that we will continue to put down what is wrong, what is not of you, and seek you, Lord, more and more. Amen.